August 5th, 2010, in the northern Chilean region of Atacama, a mine collapsed and 33 men went missing. At the time, it was unknown whether they were alive or dead. Very quickly, 130 people gathered to help discover what was going on and to see if, if in fact, they were alive, what could be done for them. And so, at the mine head, people started to look around, see what they could do to actually start doing probes and, and find out where these miners might be. What condition might they actually be in? Were some injured? Were some uh, hurt critically? They didn't know. Eventually, the probes that they sent down, drilled down, found the miners in a pocket where they were protected. But this was two weeks after the initial mine had collapsed. Two weeks of families in some agony and in a lot of prayer trying to understand what's going on. Are they alive? Lord, where are you in the midst of this? But once the good news came back that they were mostly okay, then the rescue began in earnest. The rescue had a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. And eventually all those came into play as drill bits broke, as uh, things were still tentative in terms of the geologics. Eventually they had a wide enough shaft so that food and water could be there, sent down to replace what they had. And finally, each miner was able to be taken out one at a time. Two months after the initial mine collapse. Some of you may have seen the news at the time. But there's something about us in, in our human souls that when we see someone in peril, when we see them going from a place of being okay one moment and in extreme danger the next, that we want to reach out to them. We don't have to think very far back in our, our own news. Just a month ago, tomorrow, will be the uh, one-month anniversary of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Just reading those reports, now what, some 50,000 people who have lost their lives. But immediately after the earthquake, 110,000 people were on scene to see who could be saved, what, what, who could be found. And we heard amazing tales of rescue, but they were a person here and three people there and seven people over there. Eventually, 105 countries would send help and aid to not only help those be extracted from the rubble, but all those who had no home, who needed food, who needed shelter. There's something about our human spirit that when we see people in trouble, who one day were fine and just like us and now are in the danger of, of dying, that we want to reach out. We want to help. We want to rescue The text that Cindy read introduces us to Jesus who helps and who rescues. In this case, he's dealing with Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. We'll talk about that in a minute. Nicodemus doesn't really know what rescue looks like. He actually thinks he's a rescuer, but he, in fact, is part of the problem. So this week, we'll look at Nicodemus. But these are stories of rescue, if you will, through the Gospel of John over the next four weeks as part of Lent. Next week, we'll look at John 4, which is the story of the woman at the well. Her rescue is a little bit different than Nicodemus's. After that is the man who was born blind, and he needs a different kind of help. He may not be in danger 
of losing his life, but he is, his life is not even close to, to what it could be. And finally, in the fourth week, there's Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, who absolutely, when Jesus comes to see him, he's already in the tomb without hope. And so these gospel accounts are speaking to us about the Jesus that is going to Calvary on our behalf. It is the ultimate rescue that each of us needs. In each of these, we learn something not only a little bit more about what that means, about who Jesus is and what he does for us. We learn a little bit more about how we can respond and how we do respond. So let's, let's look at Nicodemus for the remainder of our time. Nicodemus, as I said, is a Pharisee. A Pharisee was someone who actually said, I believe in eternal life. This is what the Pharisees did. And the way you get to eternal life is by being as holy as you possibly can. God is holy. God is pure. If you want to be with God in eternity, you must master to the best of your ability that holiness, which is contained in the law, the Pentateuch. And where the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, is, is uh, opaque or deficient or not relevant, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years later, we the Pharisees will create some new laws to help you out. So that between the five books of Moses and the other stuff, and what we're writing, you're in good shape. All you have to do is follow. And by the way, not only do we, do we kind of create that plan, but we monitor the plan. It's like a little thermometer. How are you doing? And we know who's going to be in and who's going to be out. We know the saints and the sinners. We know those that are uh, in peril, and we know those that are, are going to be with the Lord, God willing. Who are they going to be with the Lord? The Pharisees and some of the other holy people who are not tax collectors and sinners and those that don't live according to the law. So this is, this is Nicodemus. This is his world. But he sees something in Jesus in, the, in his confrontation of the money changers at the temple, which in John's gospel happens in the previous chapter in chapter 2. He sees something in Jesus in the healing that Jesus is actually doing. He knows that these are messianic signs, that the one who was promised is the one who will do such things. And yet he's confused because Jesus also extends his ministry and his confrontation to whom? To the Pharisees. So he has what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. I got one thing that I think I'm agreeing with, another one that really sounds wrong, and I don't know what to do with these things. And so he goes to Jesus at night, because it's a little touchy, a little sensitive, and he says, we know that you are a teacher, you've come from God, for no one can perform these signs you are doing if God was not with him. Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus is kind of starting the conversation. Jesus takes it and just like accelerates it to the main point. You ever have somebody, maybe you're like that. Maybe you've got somebody in your work group and you're kind of like, okay, how do we do this project? Or we, we have to hit this touchy subject. And they're just like, no, this is a big thing. This is a touchy subject. We're going to start with this one. Like, oh, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's starting with the most important point, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And in an instant, Nicodemus, is, he's not on the inside. He's not the one who is righteous. He is suddenly the one who is not righteous. Because it's not about keeping the law. It's about letting God's spirit 
Breathe on our spirit. Speak to us. Invite us to be the one who, another member of his family, another subject in the kingdom of God. And the image of born again, as much as it's kind of become tattered over the course of American culture in the last 40 years, the image of being born again is so complete. Like to be born, it, it's a new creation. This is what Paul calls us. We are new creations. It's not like we got a little bit of our, our life in the world. We live in this world still. But who we are, what animates us, who we belong to, what we live for, all of this comes out of this place of being born again. And this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. This is the invitation or the theological explanation that he's giving him. The spirit blows where he will. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the spirit to the spirit. And what he's saying to Nicodemus in effect, is that your way of doing things is not the way that works. In fact, your way of doing things actually gets people into greater trouble. You think that you're helping them and making them righteous, but in fact, you are driving them farther away because you are, you are misrepresenting who God is. He's not one who just sort of sits back, folds his arms, and says, are you keeping the law? He is one who comes to us and says, my spirit seeks after your spirit. I love you more than you can possibly know in this life and in this moment, and I want to connect and draw closer to you. That's the Lord that Jesus is presenting. This is the Lord. This is why the Lord says to Nicodemus, I will be lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. And suddenly Nicodemus' mind, because he's a good Pharisee, would be taken into that desert scene where the Jews are complaining, the Israelites are complaining because it is hot and they are thirsty and they thought they could just go on the direct route. Instead, Moses, and God is telling him to do this, is taking them around this the long way. More hot, more thirst, no food, bad food. We're tired. We are unhappy. We are officially registering our complaint. We are sending memos. God sends venomous snakes to chastise. But it's hard chastisement because some are, many are dying, it says. And so they repent and they say, Moses, make a way. We are sorry that we have grumbled against God. And Moses makes the snake, the bronze snake. And he says, if you just look up at this, in the midst of this desert where venomous snakes are, and you are bitten, you will be saved. This is a life and death experience for the Israelites. There's no other option that is available to them other than to look at the bronze snake. And this is by raising this reference to Numbers 21. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. That there is no other option. Your way, Nicodemus, the way of the Pharisees is not the way. For us practically today... There's still a spirit of Pharisee uh, that exists. Uh, Many commentators, Tim Keller uh, being one, Rebecca McLaughlin, who's written a book called Secular Creed, being another. They speak of essentially how, how civilization and our own particular Western culture, a lot of the things that we value in terms of the value of every person, the value of man and a woman, the value of children, the value and equity between equality between every tribe and every nation, all these originate 
in the Word of God, in the gospel of the Lord. And as the church was living out in their, in their, in their better ways this calling, they began to see that the way the Romans treated infant girls was not right, so they took them in. They began to see that the way that, that slaves were treated and the way that they had little rights, they, they said that wasn't right. All this began from the fact that we are created in God's image. He is the one that made us, and he is the one who knows best what we need in order to thrive. And the church saw themselves as the beginning of the kingdom of God because that's what Jesus said the church was. And so when we do that, we are living out the kingdom of God. But as culture advanced, they said, we like the ideas. We just don't like the God connection part. And so they tried to separate God. But when you do that, then you become a Pharisee. Then you're like, like the Pharisees. You're trying to figure out who's orthodox with our particular version of what rights are and what responsibilities are. And, and we have this brewing in our culture right now at, at kind of an extreme volume level. Keller just admits, says the secular age was built on the legacy of Christian values, but the practices they're trying to do are doing so without God. That if you're thinking, you, you know, God is more of an impediment, that has more faith assumptions to it than actually a believer in, in many ways. So we need to be aware of how culture might be affecting us in certain ways or things that we try to do independent of some connection with God, independent of seeing him as, as the one whose spirit continues to speak with our spirit. And so in this second week of Lent, as we look at how Jesus rescues us, how he restores us, I think let's, let's kind of figure, let's press into how we rekindle that call, our understanding To say to him, Lord, would you speak to me afresh about how I can follow you? That, that this spirit that you've breathed into me, that makes me belong to you, to the extent that I'm still looking behind and looking at maybe aspects of my prior life or affections that I had, would you allow me to look forward to follow you the way that you are leading me? Lord, I've got worries, I've got concerns, whatever desert that, that we may find ourselves in where we are thirsty and we are hungry. Know that he wants us to see his love and care for us in the midst of that, even while he's leading us through that. Let me close with this. When we are at our retreat yesterday, uh, we did midday prayer, and one of the psalms that's typically in midday prayer is Psalm 121. It says this, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. The Lord who calls us, the Lord who breathed life into us is the one who sees us through until he calls us home. He is the one who gives us all that we need to glorify him and to experience the life that he has for each one of us, a life that is more than we can think or imagine. But I, as I'm reading this and as 
thinking about this and preparing this, I'm so aware of the too many of the times where I say, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. And I don't think you're going to, you're, come on, Lord. So Lent is a good time to be reflective of that. And to say, Lord, don't allow me to be a grumbler. Don't allow the, the legitimate and genuine pressures that each of us feel for a variety of reasons, from family and from work and from culture, etc. Don't let those things overwhelm us, but we feel at times that they can be overwhelming. And so we say, Lord, I am dependent on you. The safest place to be in this world is to be dependent on the Lord, to lift our eyes to the hills, knowing that he is our help in all things that we need. The maker of heaven and earth, he will keep you from all harm. And as the text closed, that famous verse in Psalm, or verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. 